0: Hi everyone, Andrew here. Soon, it will be time to start a new book on Send Me to Sleep, and we want you to help us decide what to read. Follow the link in the episode show notes and submit your vote. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight. And taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight I'll be reading Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor, chapters 75 to 78. In the last chapters, we learned of the great philosopher Socrates. In tonight's story, we will learn how Athens was finally defeated. This story contains themes of death that some listeners may find unsettling. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice, so let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 75. The Athenian Army is Destroyed The Athenians made their preparations to retreat as secretly as possible, but the Syracusans soon discovered their plans. When they heard that their departure was delayed for 27 days, they determined to attack the Athenian fleet once more, and again they were successful. On land, the Athenians repulsed Gylippus but they gained little by this success, for the Syracusans had made up their mind that the whole Athenian army should be destroyed. So, as Demosthenes had foreseen, They barricaded the entrance to the great harbour, drawing their ships across it and lashing them together with chains. Nakaias saw that a battle must be fought, and he ordered a great number of the land troops to go on board the fleet. At all costs, he must strengthen his navy. The first thing the Athenians had to do was to break through the ships that were lashed together at the mouth of the harbour, but before the chains could be broken, the enemy was upon them, surrounding them on every side. Despair gave the Athenians courage, and so desperately did they fight that for a time it seemed that they might yet escape. Above the crash of vessels rose the cheers or groans of those who watched the battle from the shore. Thucydides gives us a picture of the hopes and fears, the triumphs and despairs of those who fought as those who watched. He says, The fortune of the battle varied, and it was not possible that the spectators on the shore should all receive the same impression of it. Being quite close and having different points of view, they would some of them see their own ships victorious, their courage would then revive, and they would earnestly call upon the gods not to take from their hope of deliverance. But others, who saw their ships worsened, cried and shrieked aloud, and were by the sight alone more utterly unnerved than the defeated combatants themselves. Others, again, who had fixed their gaze on some part of the struggle which was undecided, were in a state of excitement still more terrible. They kept swaying their bodies to and fro in an agony of hope and fear. As the stubborn conflict went on and on, for at every instant they were all but saved or all but lost, and while the strife hung in the balance, you might hear in the Athenian army at once lamentation, shouting, cries of victory or defeat, and all the various sounds which are wrung from a great host in extremity of danger. At length, the Athenians were pushed back, and yet further back, until the fleet was stranded on the shore. The soldiers who had been left on the land now rushed forward and succeeded in saving sixty of their ships from the enemy. Demosthenes urged the men to embark and try once again to cut their way out of the harbour. But they refused, so crushed were they by their defeat. To retreat by land was all that the Athenians could now try to do, yet in their hearts they knew that the retreat must end in slavery or death. The sick and the wounded were left behind, but those who were stricken with fever, Caused by the marshland on which they had been encamped, clung to their comrades, and scarce knowing what they did, begged that they might not be left behind. But their strength soon failed, and they sank down by the wayside to die. Nicaeus, ill as he was, did all in his power to encourage and cheer his men. He himself led the van. Demosthenes brought up the rear. After marching for several days, the Athenians were parched with thirst. When at length they reached a stream, it was to find the enemy awaiting them on the farther bank. But their thirst was intolerable, and paying no heed to the foe, the soldiers rushed to the water. As they stooped to drink, the Syracusans fell upon them and put them to death. Demosthenes and his men had fallen behind the rest of the army and had already been forced to surrender. Nicaeus now saw that he, too, must submit to Gylippus Seven thousand prisoners were sent to the Spartans to work in stone quarries. These quarries were like dungeons, but they were open to the sky. And during the day, the scorching sun beat down piteously on the miserable prisoners, while at night, the cold was so intense that sleep was impossible. Here they were kept for seventy days, with only enough food to keep them alive, and with scarcely any water to drink. Many of the men died. Those who survived were sold as slaves. Nicaeus and Demosthenes were both put to death. It is said that they were tortured although Gylippus did all that he could to save them from the angry Syracusans. Thus, in disaster and defeat, ended the expedition that sailed forth so bravely from Athens two years before. Thucydides said that this expedition was the greatest adventure that the Greeks entered into during this war, and, In my opinion, he adds, the greatest in which the Greeks were ever concerned. The one most splendid for the conquerors and most disastrous for the conquered. For they suffered no common defeat, but were absolutely annihilated. Land army, fleet and all, and of many thousands, only a handful ever returned home. Chapter 76 Alcibiades Returns to Athens. Alcibiades fled from the Athenians to Sparta, but he did not stay there long, for he grew tired of living as simply and frugally as the people of that country. He had, too, made an enemy of one of the kings of Sparta. So, in the autumn of 412 BC, he fled to Miletus in Asia Minor, where Tissaphernes, the Persian governor, ruled for the great king. Tissaphernes was a cruel man, but he was easily pleased by flattery. Alcibiades soon discovered the governor's weakness, and he determined to win his favor by his agreeable speeches. He succeeded so well that the Persian named some of his parks and pavilions Alcibiades in honour of the eloquent Athenian. The luxury and ease with which the Persians were surrounded pleased Alcibiades after his course of Spartan fare and discipline, and he indulged for a time in even greater magnificence than did Tissaphernes. His anger against the Athenians had gradually grown less vehement, and he now began to wish that they would forget their hatred of him and recall him from exile. But they had little thought to spare for the traitor, for troubles were pouring in upon them on every side, they had but lately heard of the complete overthrow of their fleet and army in Sicily, and they were now building a new fleet, with money which Pericles had put aside long before, lest any time Attica should be invaded by sea. The Spartans, too, were still at Desilea, where they had built a fort not fourteen miles from the city. Town after town that had been allied with Athens in the time of her prosperity now became her enemy. In their despair, the Athenians had taken a desperate step. They had asked their old enemies, the Persians, to come to their aid. It was then that Alcibiades saw an opportunity, as he thought, to help the people whom he had so cruelly betrayed, and at the same time to please the Persians. So he sent a message to the Athenians to say that if they would place the government of Athens in the hands of a party named the 400. He would be able to persuade Tissaphernes to make an alliance with them. For his master, the great king, would make no terms with Athens as long as she was a democracy. The Athenians followed Alcibiades' advice, and the government of the city was entrusted to the 400 for a short time. But Alcibiades had not so much influence as he had believed, and the Persian government still refused to help the Athenians. Partly perhaps in anger with Tissaphernes, partly because the Athenians were not satisfied with the rule of the 400, Alcibiades helped to overthrow them and to make Athens once again a democracy. So grateful were the people for his help that they declared his exile was at an end and bade him return to Athens. But although Alcibiades longed to go back to Athens, he was content to wait until he could return covered with glory. By his own request, he was given the command of a few ships, and with these he set sail for the Hellespont. Mindurus, the Spartan admiral, with a large army was there, hoping to stop the corn supply of Athens on its way to the city from the Black Sea. If the corn supply was stopped, Athens would starve, and Mindurus knew that the city would then soon be in the hands of the Spartans. The Athenian fleet was in three divisions, and the one commanded by Alcibiades passed the Hellespont unseen by the enemy and took Mindorus by surprise. By land and sea desperate battles were fought, and in both the Athenians were victorious. Mindorus was slain, and the Spartan fleet was destroyed. The Hellespont was not blocked, and Athens was no longer in danger of starving. The Spartans, in their own laconic way, sent a brief message to Sparta to tell of their defeat. The dispatch was seized by the Athenians before it reached its destination. This is what the victorious people read. The ships are gone. Mindorus is slain. The men are starving. We know not what to do. For two years, from 409 BC to 407 BC, Alcibiades stayed at Hellespont, retaking cities that had thrown off their allegiance to Athens and joined Sparta. Then, feeling that now he might return with glory, he set sail for Athens. Plutarch tells us that as Alcibiades drew near to the Piraeus, he was afraid to venture on shore, until he saw friends waiting to welcome him. As soon as he was landed, the multitude who came out to meet him scarcely seemed so much as to see any other of the captains, but came in throngs about Alcibiades and saluted him with loud acclamations, and still followed him. Those who could press near him crowned him with garlands And they who could not come up so close yet stayed to behold him afar off, and the old men pointed him out and showed him to the young ones. In the assembly, crowns of gold were placed on his head, and he was created general with absolute power over both the land and the sea forces. His estates were given back to him, and a holy herald was bidden to absolve him from the curses which had been pronounced against him. The high priest alone refused to obey, for he said, If he is innocent, I never cursed him. Chapter 77 Antiochus disobeys Alcibiades. The king of Persia was not pleased with his governor, Tissaphernes, because he had made an alliance with neither the Athenians nor the Spartans. So he now sent his younger son, Cyrus, to take the place of Tissaphernes, bidding him make terms with the Spartans. Lysander was now in command of the Spartan fleet. He was as brave and skillful an admiral as Brasidas had been, although he could not win the trust of strangers as his famous countrymen had done. But he gained the affection of his men and cared for their welfare. Cyrus invited Lysander to a feast and tried to bribe him to join the Persians, but in vain. The Persian prince then offered to give him whatever he chose to ask. Lysander wished nothing for himself, but, to the surprise of all who were present, he begged that the daily wage of his sailors might be increased. The Spartan sailed with his fleet close to the harbour of Euphaeus. About the same time, Alcibiades with the Athenian fleet arrived at Notium, from which port he could watch the movements of the enemy. As he had little money with which to pay his men, he determined to leave the fleet in charge of his pilot, Antiochus, while he, taking with him a few ships, sailed away to plunder a neighbouring city. In this way, he hoped to find the money that he needed. Alcibiades strictly forbade Antiochus to risk a battle. No sooner, however, had the admiral gone than the pilot disobeyed his orders, and with a number of ships He sailed past the Spartan fleet, challenging Lysander to fight. The Spartan, in reply, merely sent a few vessels to drive away the reckless pilot. But the ships that had been left at Notium soon noticed that Antiochus was being chased, and they at once hastened to join him. In a short time, The two fleets were engaged in battle. Antiochus was slain, and fifteen of the Athenian ships were taken or sunk. Those that escaped sailed to Samos, where Alcibiades soon joined them. He determined, if it were possible, to avenge the punishment the Spartans had inflicted on the Athenian vessels so he sailed to Euphacis and offered battle to Lysander. But the Spartan had won a great victory, and he did not mean to risk a defeat. He refused to fight again. Alcibiades still had enemies in Athens, and they were so angry with him for having left the charge of the fleet to Antiochus that they clamoured for his command to be taken from him. The assembly was forced to yield to them, and Alcibiades was disposed, while the command was given to an Athenian named Conon. The admiral then fled to a city on the Hellespont, where he had long ago bought a castle lest at any time he should need a place of refuge from his enemies. Conan, the new commander, gained a great victory at the island of Arganusae on the coast of Asia. After the victory, a storm arose, and a dozen Athenian vessels, which had been disabled in the battle, went down with all the crews on board. No attempt was made to rescue the unfortunate sailors, and eight of the Athenian generals were ordered to come home to be tried for neglect of duty. Six only obeyed. The assembly met and condemned the generals, but their sentence was left undetermined. On the day after the trial, A festival was held in the city, at which solemn family gatherings took place. When the relations of those who had perished at Arganuse appeared, clad in black, their number roused the people to fresh fury against the condemned generals. The assembly met shortly afterwards, and one of the members demanded that the people should vote without delay and if the generals were found guilty, that they should be put to death. Now the generals had not yet finished their defence. Moreover, there was a law in Athens that prisoners should be judged and sentenced one at a time. At first, the assembly wished to obey this law, but the mob was so fierce that it yielded. And pronounced sentence of death on all the generals at once. To each was brought a cup of hemlock. Socrates was present in the assembly, and he was not afraid to denounce the sentence as unlawful, nor would he withdraw his protest in face of the angry crowd. This was a brave deed, such as you would expect from the Great Philosopher. Chapter 78 The Walls of Athens Are Destroyed The last battle of the Peloponnesian War was fought in the Hellespont in 405 BC. The Athenians had drawn up their ships near a desolate spot named Egospotami, and they soon found that it was an awkward place from which to get provisions for the enemy. There were no houses near from which they could demand help, so the sailors were forced to leave their ships and scour the country round about for food. So dreary was the spot that the Athenians longed to fight at once. But Lysander was in a strong position on the other side of the strait. He had, too, a plentiful supply of food, so that he did not mean to let himself be forced into battle. Again and again, the Athenians sailed across the strait, hoping to tempt the Spartans to fight. But Lysander refused to move. As the weeks passed, the Athenians grew careless of an enemy that seemed too lazy or too cowardly to fight. They left their ships well nigh unguarded and wandered over the country in large numbers in search of food. Alcibiades, from his castle not far off, saw that the Athenians were in a dangerous position. And that they were leaving their ships unprotected. He rode over to Agospotami to warn the generals to seek a safer position. At Sestos, a town but two miles off, they would be better able to defend themselves from the Spartans, should they be attacked. They would also be able to command provisions But the generals did not wish to listen to Alcibiades, and their pride forbade them to follow his advice. They spoke rudely to him, telling him to be gone, that now not he but others had the command of the forces. The very day after Alcibiades had warned them, the Athenians, leaving their ships for the most part unmanned, set out to search the countryside for food. Lysander knew how the enemy usually spent the afternoons. Now that they had grown heedless of danger, he determined to attack the forsaken ships without further delay. So he ordered his vessels to row quickly across the strait, and he found, as expected, the Athenian fleet utterly unprepared for battle. There was indeed no battle fought, for the Spartans easily captured 170 ships and took more than 4,000 prisoners, among whom were three or four admirals. Conan alone, with eight ships, succeeded in escaping but he dared not return to Athens with tidings of the disaster, for he knew that if he did so, he would be condemned to death. So he sent a ship to carry the terrible news to the city. It was evening when the vessel reached Piraeus. The noise of wailing spread up the long walls into the city as one passed the tidings on to another, That night no one slept, for now there was no fleet to hinder the Spartans from stopping the supply of corn, and the Athenians knew that they must starve or surrender. For a little while the city refused to yield, but she had no allies, no ships, no money, and no corn could enter the town. The wretched people were dying of hunger before Athens surrendered to the Spartans in March 404 BC. She expected no mercy from her conqueror, even as she had destroyed many a Spartan town, so she thought that now she herself would be utterly ruined but Sparta proved less harsh than Athens had deemed was possible. The city was indeed to be rendered harmless forever, but not destroyed. All that was left of her fleet was taken away, and the walls of Piraeus and the walls leading to Athens were pulled down. Lysander stood near, looking on, as the Athenians and Spartans together began to break down the walls. It was not so gloomy a scene as you might have expected. Perhaps the Athenians were glad that at length the long and desperate struggle had come to an end. Flute players and dancers were present and added a strange touch of gaiety to the crowd. Soon after the surrender of Athens, Lysander was ordered to put Alcibiades to death, lest he should encourage the Athenians at any time to throw off their allegiance to Sparta. Plutarch tells us that those who were sent to assassinate him had not courage enough to enter the house, but surrounded it first and set it on fire Alcibiades, as soon as he perceived it, getting together great quantities of clothes and furniture, threw them upon the fire to choke it, and having wrapped his cloak about his arm and holding his naked sword in his right hand, he cast himself into the middle of the fire and escaped securely through it before his clothes were burnt. The barbarians, as soon as they saw him, retreated, and none of them durst stay to wait for him or to engage with him, but, standing at a distance, they slew him with darts and arrows.